I see a small room light up in your face, like your face is a dark sleeping mansion, but something is moving, someone's awake in a back room and they've switched a light on, but why? What stranger is raising her head in your face at this time of the evening when our judgement lies slumbering in bed? Yet the silhouette seems so appealing, like we've quarrelled or shared some transgression, your night wanderer. But what does she know? Will she turn if I yell the right question? Will she wave? Will she come to the window? Yes. Now she's staring so clear, so apart unblinking from that visage with a view and you think that I'm scouring your heart but I'm not I'm just looking back at you from this attic I live in at midnight to the woman who's waving from that hidden room you don't visit during the daylight it's not locked it's just slightly forbidden yet for this moment she's owning the space owning mine before dawn flicks the light on to reveal every quarter of your face and I can't see which room's the secret one. Hello and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week I read a poem, look at its inner workings and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Eye Contact by Caroline Bird. Before I begin today, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. It makes things just that little bit easier. Caroline Bird has had a fantastic career as a poet. Her first collection was published when she was just 15 and she ended up collecting a horde of awards from her days as a young poet. Her work is often lauded for its surrealistic manipulation of imagery and language. For Bird herself, she describes her work as an attempt to turn universal feelings like love, shame, or fear into a kind of dreamscape of vivid imagery. Speaking about her work here in an interview. Well, I like to write about normal feelings using very strange imagery. You know like when you have a dream uh, and then you wake up and you think that was absolutely crazy but I know why I dreamt it. Yeah. Right? I want to try and create poems like that. They'll be about love and relationships or you know, wanting to like yourself more or any of those things. But I'll, I'll, I'll kind of turn them into dreams on the page. While most of her work has ventured into extremely surrealistic territory, eye contact and the collection it comes from, in these days of prohibition, represent a kind of departure to a more restrained, honest form of writing. Bird wrote many of the poems ten years previous to their publishing, while she attended rehab for drug addiction. The motivation for such a departure was planted in her by one of her counsellors whilst in rehab. In her own words, in these days of prohibition, uh, began its life quite unhappily, I think. It, well, I went to uh, a rehab in Arizona, in the middle of the desert, in my early 20s, and my counsellor accused me of using poetry to hide from myself because um, of the habit that I got into of taking the questionnaires and the worksheets and the whatever they were handing out and translating them into surrealism. Um, and, and I thought at the time this was just my way of understanding the world as I'd always done it. Uh, and then he pointed out that maybe it was also me trying to deflect from having to think about the simple truth about what was going on with me. Um, and so then, I, you know, I came home and I, I wrote 
two other books in the, in the meantime, which got more and more surreal. Uh, and then, but this, this voice kept on bugging me about my relationship to the truth and using surrealism to deflect from that. Eye contact is a poem of universal emotion. To me, it speaks of the bitter feeling of placing second to someone else in the affections of one you love. The seemingly hopeless battle against the ghost of somebody else in your lover's mind. It's not jealousy, it's something deeper and sadder. A recognition that not even the person you want knows they're haunted. A quick note before beginning the analysis here. Caroline Bird is an openly gay woman, and therefore, I often refer to the you of the poem as a woman, but will try to keep it as neutral as possible, as this poem could be written about anybody, for anybody. I see a small room light up in your face, like your face is a dark, sleeping mansion, but something is moving, someone's awake in a back room, and they've switched a light on. Surrealism abounds in this first stanza. The dark, sleeping mansion of their face immediately sets the poem in the realm of gothic fiction. You'd struggle to find a more suitable genre than this for the haunting refrain of this poem. Brims with spectral manifestation, ghosts, and the past. There isn't a better analogy for this lingering presence in the speaker's relationship. Bird uses language like something here in the othering sense. She wishes to enhance the alien feeling of this presence in her relationship. It shouldn't be there. It isn't right. The light being switched on is a memory dancing across the mind of the person the speaker loves. In the second stanza, the pain of these spontaneous intrusions is laid bare. But why? What stranger is raising her head in your face at this time of the evening, when our judgement lies slumbering in bed? Yet the silhouette seems so appealing. The speaker cannot understand the reason for this sudden manifestation. Why is the object of her affection not content? Why does she allow her mind to wander, grant permission to the stranger to enter it at will? For me, this line of questioning is extremely reminiscent of the plot lines of books like The Turn of the Screw by Henry James or Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. In both tales, the protagonists, women in the grip of infatuation, are bewildered by the spectres of their respective lovers' pasts. Ghosts whose motives are mysterious and anxiety-inducing, both are also set in huge, eerie, imposing mansions. There is a recognition on the part of the speaker that their lover is not entirely at fault. After all, their judgement lies slumbering in bed. The line, yet the silhouette seems so appealing, bleeds directly into the next stanza. Like we've quarrelled or shared some transgression, your night wanderer. But what does she know? Will she turn if I yell the right question? Will she wave? Will she come to the window? These are powerful lines. It speaks of the poet's own struggles around shame and attaching herself to the wrong kinds of people. A trauma bonding of sorts. The energy felt here is one of animosity. The pair are at odds. Not the speaker and her love, but rather the speaker and the ghost that haunts her relationship. They've crossed some boundaries together. The lines seem to hint at a kind of toxic intimacy. Bird herself has been quite candid about her own difficult relationships with people who weren't the healthiest choice for her when she was younger. From here, the language and the feeling of the poem moves to antagonism. A kind of interrogation takes place, but a reluctant one. You're night wanderer, but what does she know? Will she turn if I yell the right question? 
Will she wave? Will she come to the window? The speaker wonders how much control her object of affection has over these memories, these unexpected visits. She slowly comes to realize that the more she asks certain questions, ones that wound her more than anyone else, the more this memory vivifies. This figure in the house comes sharply into focus. Bird receives her answer at the beginning of the next section. Yes, now she's staring so clear, so apart, unblinking from that visage with a view. And you think that I'm scouring your heart, but I'm not. I'm just looking back at you. The pain felt by both parties as a result of this inquisition becomes apparent in these lines. The more that the speaker questions and pulls at the thread, the clearer this spectre becomes in the mind of the lover. The lover herself is left to wonder why the speaker wants to hurt her, why she wishes to dredge up the past and reopen old wounds, why she wants to scour her heart. This is where tragedy rears its head. As for the speaker, it's not a single question that summons the spectre, but the simple act of gazing into the face of her partner. This habitual haunting is taking a toll on the speaker's own mental state. The next stanza focuses on the insecurity and uncertainty brought on by the nightly visitations, from this attic I live in at midnight, to the woman who's waving from that hidden room you don't visit during the daylight. It's not locked, it's just slightly forbidden. That first line plunges us back into the Victorian Gothic tale that the poem is composing. From this attic I live in at midnight is a literary reference to the famous trope of the madwoman in the attic, a grotesque representation of what was called the rest cure in the 19th century. Here is a brief summary of that cure taken from the work of Ellen S. Bassock. During the late 19th century, Victorian doctors frequently administered S. Weir Mitchell's famous rest cure to women with severe nervous symptoms. These included patients diagnosed as hypochondriacs, hysterics, and most commonly, neurasthenics. Supposedly, many benefited, but others, such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Virginia Woolf, became even sicker and condemned both Mitchell and his treatment. Certainly, the rest cure was less barbaric than leeching, cauterization, and normal ovaritomy procedures that were also used to treat women with nervous ailments, but it too seemed sadistic, controlling, and intrusive. The potential for misuse in this treatment is obvious, and misused it was. Many men of wealth and influence would simply have a doctor prescribe the rest cure for their wife. This wife might be voicing an opinion about emancipation, or simply stating that her husband staying out all night with strange women wasn't acceptable. The cure became a socially acceptable way to banish your hysterical wife. It would later become a staple of the gothic horror genre, most famously in Jane Eyre where Lord Rochester has locked away his maddened wife Bertha, and her present begins to gnaw away at Jane's own sanity. This trope was used as a form of gaslighting, a means to underline perfectly healthy women and make them doubt themselves. To me, the poet uses it here to show that she feels that she is being made to seem unreasonable. She has been locked in the attic for her questions and worries. Her own mental state is being eroded by doubt and jealousy. It's clear that these problems come at night, when the lover the speaker is addressing has time to think. The hidden room you don't visit during the daylight. It's not locked, it's just slightly forbidden. This haunting has begun to fray the relationship. 
Perhaps the topic has become taboo for the pair, never outwardly forbidden, but quietly and consciously avoided when the pair talk. Ultimately, the final stanza reveals just how futile the speaker's battle is in all this. Yet for this moment, she's owning the space, owning mine, before dawn flicks the lights on to reveal every quarter of your face, and I can't see which room's the secret one. The poet is possessive of her love, owning mine. She should be the one occupying her lover's thoughts, and yet she isn't. This ghost of a former flame owns the space, has dominion here. Her lover isn't conscious of this. There is a sadness and uncertainty in these final lines. When the dawn comes, the thoughts of this ghost fade. The morning light reveals every quarter of your face. The speaker can gaze upon her lover and examine her, but now it would seem the lover is constantly hiding the ghost. She can't see which room's the secret one anymore. This leaves a tragic question hanging in the air. Do these visitations simply come at night, or is their lover constantly thinking of the former flame and simply drops their guard when night falls? Why did I choose this poem? To my mind, it's one of the best examples of metaphor and analogy in poetry that I've read in recent months. I think Caroline Bird expertly rides the wave of the surreal and manages to toe the line on occasion so as not to lose or alienate her reader. The poem, much like its content, has a kind of haunting quality. There is a painful emotion explored here, in a subtle, unusual, yet relatable way. I enjoy the literary references to one of my favourite genres laced into its lines, and the way it handles such a painful emotion in a masterful fashion. I strongly recommend that if you enjoyed this poem you read the entire collection in these days of prohibition. The work itself functions as a whole, and this is merely one step in many. So, how did I do? Do you agree with my reading of the poem, or am I a million miles off? I will point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, and there are many other ways of looking at it. If you'd like to talk to me about it, if you have thoughts of your own, or if you have a poem you'd like me to read on this podcast, you can get in touch in loads of different places. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast, where I upload helpful study guides and bonus material. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, complete with references to every academic text that I use to research, you can find them at wordsthatburnpodcast.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Sergei Cheraminisov and is used under Creative Commons license. I've been doing this podcast for seven weeks now, and I really appreciate all the feedback that you've given me. If you've been enjoying it, please consider leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It would really help me build the audience for this podcast. As always, I really appreciate you spending your time with me. And hopefully, you'll hear from me again soon.